This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Welcome to Super Age. My name is David Stewart. I am the founder of Ageist and your host on the Super Age show. We talk about how to live healthier, how to live longer, and how to be happier. And who doesn't want that? Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker, the dashboard to your inner health. Go to insidetracker.com/ageist, save 20% on all their products. Today's show is also brought to you by Element. L-M-N-T. My favorite electrolyte mix. It's what I put in my water in the morning, and it's what I put in my water at the gym. Go to drinkelement.com slash ageist and receive a free eight-serving sample pack with any purchase. Today's show is also brought to you by SRW. Aging is inevitable, but how we age is chiefly a matter of our choices. If you go to srw.co, you can save 20% on all their products by using the code AGIST20 at checkout. Welcome to episode 137 of the Super 8 Show. This will be dropping on June the 7th, 2023. So a few weeks ago, um, some government agencies in cooperation with some private entities did a little study. And what they were looking at was which of the U.S. states do people live the longest in? And guess what? Hawaii. Now, when we think about this, is it because of what the Hawaiians eat? Is it a blue zone? They're eating a lot of purple potatoes and beans and such? Um, No, actually, the Hawaiian diet that I've noticed and I've been there is not that great. I mean, you know, spam is real. (laughs) Um, And there's a lot of uh, roast pig and other things. I'm not recommending to anyone that they eat those things, but I don't think it's really the food. Uh, What I do think is, it is their lack of stress. And you may recall when I spoke to Joel Jameson on this podcast back a few months ago, he was telling us that he lived in Hawaii. And I was somewhat surprised by that. Here's a guy who makes his living training combat athletes, and he lives in Hawaii. And I asked him why. And he said it was because precisely this reason that Hawaiians, um, there's just much less stress. And he felt that that was really important to him. And I and I think that that's something that we see time and time again. I mean, le- last week, Kian Vu was talking about the, you know, the secret to longevity is really just living well, which is another way of saying reduce the stress in your life. And that brings us to this week's guest, uh, Dr. Jen Wagner, who is, you know, had a pretty high profile powerhouse career um, at Stanford Medical as a pediatric anesthesiologist and decided that that level of stress and that lifestyle was really not great for her and for her family. And so she pulled back which is something you almost never hear people with her credentials doing that. And I think that's rather astonishing. And then the thing that we have her on the show today about is a conversation that I had with her when I was on a panel with her talking about how so much of medicine is based on a, a relatively short time horizon, of a five-year or a 10-year horizon. And really what we need is a 40-year or a 50-year time horizon. And I think a lot of that is also involved with stress. 
We're going to get with Dr. Jen Wagner in just a moment. We're going to talk about why these medical studies are only, you know, at most five, maybe 10 years and, and why we really need a 40 or 50 year health plan paradigm to speak with, with our physicians and, and how to develop something like that. Um, we'll be speaking with Dr. Jen Wagner in just a moment. Today's show is brought to you by SRW Laboratories out of New Zealand. Their vision is to extend human health span. SRW Labs curates the very latest in science and research to formulate premium nutraceuticals that support your cellular health, especially as you age. Working with their scientific advisory board, they seek to understand and address the causes of aging at a cellular level, providing support across 12 bodily systems with an approach that is unique to SRW. They know that doing one thing well, such as eating healthily, won't have the desired effect on your health. This is why SRW seeks to educate people on the factors that influence aging and, more importantly, biological age. Use the code AGEST20 at checkout and save 20% off any order. Go to srw.co, .code, not .com. Use the code AGEST20 at checkout. Save 20% on all their products. Today's show is also brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T, my favorite electrolyte mix. One of the great findings that I learned last year was the importance of electrolytes in my water, especially sodium. Of course, if you have hypertension or you're pre-hypertensive, this is something you want to pay attention to. But for most of us, we're probably lacking electrolytes. And my favorite one is Element. And guess what? They just launched grapefruit. Um, so I'm actually drinking a Element grapefruit right now. Um, and it's awesome. If you want to check out Element, go to drinkelement.com, D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com, and you get a free eight-serving sample pack with any purchase. Um, check out the grapefruit. It's kind of awesome. And remember to stay tuned after my conversation with Dr. Jen Wagner for that part of the show called Just Try This, that little hint that may help your life just be a little happier, a little healthier, a little more joyful, right after my conversation with Dr. Jen Wagner. Hey, Jen, how are you today? Great, David. How are you? I'm, I'm awesome. Um, as I, I mentioned before the call, I, I got four and a half hours of restorative sleep last night, and I just feel like Superman today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm very envious of that. Uh, but thanks so much for having me. It's super fun to be here today with you. Yeah, absolutely. We we met on a panel. It was like a month ago, and yeah. um, I I was just really taken with a lot of the things that you said. Um, but for for the audience, tell them a little bit about yourself. All right. So um, I have a background in athletics and exercise physiology, and then. Decided to go to medical school. Um, so I went to medical school and residency. And I, by training, I'm a pediatric anesthesiologist. Um, I spent most of my career at Stanford um, practicing pediatric anesthesia and kind of healthcare organization, uh, for lack of a better term. And then about six years ago, my family decided to move to the mountains. And so we relocated to Utah. And I spent, um, about four and a half years at the University of Utah and at Shriners Children's Hospital. And then about two years ago, decided to make a big shift and um, left my clinical 
practice and joined a crazy group called the Liminal Collective, which is a human performance company. And um, that's where I've been for about the last two years. Why did you make that change? So for a couple of reasons, um, I was practicing in a uh, nonprofit kind of charity hospital, which I loved, and it was undergoing a model change. And I did not want to go back into a model that I had just left. Um, I was finally had a little control over my life and um, was really starting to realize the importance of probably a lot of the things we're going to talk about today, which was sleep and spending time with my family and just living a little more normal life. And uh, one of the reasons we left California was to kind of find that balance, especially for me. Um, And so when this model change was happening, I was going to lose that balance. And so I had really wanted to get back into kind of the performance world for a while. And so this just seemed like a great opportunity to make that leap. I, I always marvel at how the medical profession, which you would think would know a little bit about health, um, just the, the people who practice in it, they, it's just antithetical. I, I don't understand. It's, and it, you know, I, yes, it is crazy. I was actually thinking about this this morning. Um, my husband's also a physician and as we are getting older and watching, our older colleagues and their health problems from lack of sleep, constant stress, poor diet, poor hydration, especially for those of us that work in the operating room, and their quality of life um, post-retirement, if they make it to retirement, is terrible. I mean, I've had multiple colleagues have strokes in the operating room, um, heart attacks quickly after retirement. It's, It's just... It is not key <laughs> to living a long, healthy life for sure. And um, I think, you know, you go through years and years of training, priding yourself on not needing to sleep or, you know, picking up whatever processed food is sitting out that you can shove in your mouth by walking down the hallway to your next uh, OR case or patient or whatever your circumstances are. And it's terrible. Um, you know, you're so stressed out all day. I would come home. I used to drive home from Stanford and sit in my garage and cry before I went in to take care of my two kids under four, because I was so stressed from work. And then to walk in and have to be mom in a split second, um, after working a 12 hour day, um, I would go days at a time without seeing my kids. Um, it's just not, it's a very, it's a very difficult life. Well, I'm I'm sure there's a solution to that. I, I it's I I just I don't know. I mean, all of the physicians, not all of them. I would say ninety percent of the physicians I know are in terrible physical shape. Yeah, I, and I'm just like, oh, oh my gosh, like you, <laughs> you should know better. <laughs> yeah, I exactly right, and um, I think you know that the system is definitely broken. Um, and hopefully, hopefully it'll start to change soon. Um, but it's, you know, you're indoctrinated into that system and that club, and it's very, very hard to, to break those barriers down. Jeez. Um, let's, (laughs) okay. For all of those use out there thinking that medical school is a good idea. (laughs) I don't know. This is what you're in for. (laughs) 
you have to you have to really set some boundaries for yourself to to do it right. And there are people that are doing it. There are definitely great examples out there. Um, and just more of us need to follow those. So before we get into the performance stuff, I want to I want to understand a little bit about liminal. I feel yeah. it's like a Marvel movie, like you know, Guardians it, of the Galaxy or something, but they're human. <laughs> it is. It's a pretty special crew of people. Um, so the Liminal Collective was founded about six years ago by a group of individuals that um, really, really want to change the world um, is kind of really their goal. And so they really set out to create this collective of individuals who are really passionate about pushing boundaries in whatever arena they are participating in. Um, and so they have just gathered the best in the world from athletics, from business, from tech, from science, from entertainment, from the arts, um, and brought them all together uh, from the military and said, what can we do when we combine our superpowers? Um, and so that's what they do. Um, we help people or teams or organizations solve really hard problems um, through very non-traditional means. Um, and so we do a lot of performing under pressure and acceleration of team building and bonding um, to really help these teams take unique approaches to their problems and overcome them. Um, and it's it's amazing. I mean, I have found myself in rooms full of people I would never, ever have imagined in my life I would get to interact with. So, yep. So they are, they really are superpowers. I mean, former director of performance from Red Bull, Navy SEAL, Special Forces, JSOC, director, creative director from Cirque du Soleil, executives, you know, former executives of Nike. Uh, it's an interesting crew for sure. Yeah, I was just looking at the website and I thought it reminds me of um like the right stuff, that book, like the best yeah. and the brightest. Like like, oh my God, <laughs> this is really a yeah, really a crew. <laughs> it's a great crew. And then the kind of, you know, it's the ripple effect. And so just this community that has been established around this team is incredible. And it really is like having a bat phone. I mean, you can pick up the phone and call just this amazing network of people that can almost help you solve any problem you you encounter. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Liminal Collective. And then tell me about this new thing that you're doing called Prosper. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, through my life, whether it was in athletics or through medical school and medical training, and even in the performance world, I just always found that there was this gap. and we didn't really uh, weren't really addressing needs of women um at any stage you know i felt as a college athlete i trained and this is for sure improving but i trained the way the guys did we just didn't lift quite as much weight um you know through medical school you're everything is taught around a 70 kilo man because women are too complicated to do research on because we mess up data because of our cyclic nature um and even in the performance world, I felt like we were addressing things that happen to all humans, but we never really focused on women. And so a group of us, a group of women um, that met through Liminal started working on this project a little over a year ago and just said, how can we take our superpowers and what we know 
and where we've all seen these gaps. So we have women, you know, our advisors are from the military, from the spiritual world, from sports, from business. Um, and how can we take all of our collective knowledge and help educate women about how to become optimal in their own arenas and how to navigate changes in their lives and changes in their, you know, their personal lives, their careers, et cetera, to continue to perform um, at the levels they want to for as long as they want to. So that's what we're doing. And you were saying that, you know, women, high performing women are leaving the workforce um, in, yeah. in, in huge numbers. And this is, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, there's been some really interesting data release just recently, you know, um, as coming back from the pandemic, you know, the pandemic really struck all of us in really amazing ways, but really took a toll on women, you know, having to balance careers and kids at home. And um, so there was a, a huge exodus of women out of the workplace that still hasn't recovered um, from the pandemic. And then this new kind of shifting generation of women that are going through menopause are leaving the workplace in droves again, um, to the point of like $1.8 billion are lost because of menopause related causes per year. And so it is, you know, those are women that are sometimes at the prime of their careers who are then exiting the workplace for various reasons. And so I think, again, it's a time in life where, um, having some tools and a support system in place and having um, organizations and teams understand the changes in um, what women are going through in those times of their life. And that there it's all very manageable if there's the right support and in, in place and the right tools and everyone's speaking the right language. And so that's really our goal is to help um, attract female talent into organizations and teams, help develop that talent, and then really help retain that talent. So women are in leadership positions because they're really lonely. You know, these female CEOs um, in my world, in academic medicine, you know, they're very few female department chairs um, and they're lonely positions. There's not very, they don't really have a great sense of community there either because they're pretty isolated. Being a guy, I, I don't fully understand this, but for obvious reasons, women leaving the workforce during menopause. Talk to me a little bit about that. I think, you know, I think it's an interesting time. And I, I don't think all the reasons that have completely been elucidated why that's happening. Um, one is, you know, you you do go through this period where you don't quite feel like yourself and you don't feel like you're performing at your top because things are changing. You know, you go through this period of kind of mental fogginess, of poor sleep, of everything that we talk, we're going to talk about you know, being vital to longevity and health span, you lose all of that. And, um, you know, there's been some trouble with the Women's Health Initiative, which was a huge study looking at hormone replacement. Um, the data was probably misinterpreted quite a bit. And so a lot of women weren't receiving hormone replacement when probably the risks were not as high as what was thought to be from that study. So women were really suffering through this time frame and were really feeling like they couldn't perform. I think another factor that's come in is as women have decided to have children later, if they do decide to have children, it's kind of this interesting period. You know, our, our kids used to be grown by the time we went through menopause. And now we have younger kids. Our careers have reached this place. And sometimes you just pick your head up for the first time and say, 
do I even love what I'm doing anymore? I've been on this path with my head down, just getting the work done. And now I'm at a point where I can lift my head up and look around and maybe this isn't what I want to do. And there really are not the resources in place in a lot of these organizations to even help coach these women through these time periods saying, gosh, maybe leaving my executive job is not what I need. I just need to redefine my goals and parameters and um, how I want to live or work the next 20 or 30 years of my life if I want, if that's one of my goals. So I think that just not having that support system in place when so many things are changing um, kind of in our own bodies, at home, at the workplace, and there's just not any underlying structure or foundations to help guide that. Mm. It's interesting that you, the way you articulate that, that it's very much what we've seen here. Like I've, we do a lot of research and it, this interesting thing happens and it doesn't happen with everyone, but um, I don't see it as gender specific, but I can see how it's gender amplified. In the forties, mid forties, a lot of people start to think like, hmm, <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> but it's not really a mm-hmm. conscious thing. And then mm-hmm. by around like 50 or so, I've seen this so many times, people will start to take actions. They're not quite sure why they're doing what they're doing, but they're just like, they're starting to move a little bit. And I think it's sort of an escape from reactivity that, you know, early on, we're either aligned with our parents or reacting against our parents. And then we get on this career track and it's like, like you were saying, it's like head down on the railroad tracks all ahead. And then there's sort of a space where it's like, hmm, um, do, do, do I like this? Is this the right thing? And I see this where people will, you know, then like in their 50s, early mid 50s, they're like, you know, a reevaluation happens. And oftentimes it's like, oh my God, do I love the thing that I do? I just, this mm-hmm. is so awesome. I can't believe that I get to do this. Or it's like, mm, maybe I need this parallel track or something completely over here that's not right. But I, th- I think that takes mm-hmm. some time mm-hmm. to sort of, get some distance. That's what I've seen. Yeah. No, I, I agree a hundred percent. I think that, um, I think it's just a period in time where you pick your head up and can reevaluate a little bit. And, um, our hope I think with prosper is that we can, we can help some of, or many of these women stay in their roles. Um, because, a lot of them, you know, I, same as the people that you're interacting with are so highly motivated and highly charged that actually taking a step back is not fulfilling to them. They just need be, because they thrive in that environment. Um, we just need to help them remember that they thrive in that environment and figure mm-hmm. out how to realign priorities so they continue to thrive in those environments. That's well put. I like that. Um, re- remind people. You are really awesome at what you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so we one of the things when when we were chatting um, at, on this panel, y- you said something really profound to me. You said to me, "I'm not looking for like a five year plan. I'm looking for a forty year plan because I'm thinking I'm gonna I'm gonna be around for forty years." And to my knowledge, most medical studies, most medical information is you know, at best a five-year horizon. So talk to me about this idea of different framework, the different thought framework of going from sort of a relatively short plan to like for you, what does that 40-year plan look like? Yeah. So, you know, 
being able to transition from my clinical practice, um, or even while I was in my clinical practice, um, you know, you would see some people come in, um, who were 80 and looked amazing. And you would see some people come in at 60 and look terrible. Um, and I, I, so I started thinking a, a while ago, like what, what are these people doing right that at 80, they're skiing and they're traveling and they're independent and they're cognitively sharp. And I, I want to be one of those. Um, and so when I transitioned out of clinical medicine, I really, um, had the opportunity to kind of dive into this health span longevity world a little bit and read and talk to people and even talking to my own physician, you know, you go in and you get your blood test and they put you into the calculations and into the metrics and they give you a 10 year risk score. And I said, okay, I'm 45. My dad had his first heart attack at 48. My 10 year risk score on these numbers is zero, but that's actually not my tenure risk score when I look at my family and when I look at some of my numbers on my labs. And so I said, you know, I also don't, I'm 45. I don't want to be healthy till I'm 55. I want to be healthy till I'm 85 or 95 or 105. So I, so then it, this question came to me is like, okay, at 45, should my labs look closer to me when I'm 25 versus this 45 year old mark. So yes, everything's normal, but is everything optimal and is waiting until I have a significant risk factor. Is that really the right time to start prevention? And to me, I said, no, I, and you know, I, you're right. We don't have the science to back this up because those studies are really hard to do. Um, they take a long time. They're really expensive. And, and so this is kind of where I feel like the field of longevity and health span kind of cross into the gray area a little bit. You know, there's not great data about when we should start some of the therapies or when we should be more aggressive with people. Um, but I just looked at myself and I said, you know, I don't want to have a heart attack at 48. I've also, you know, my, I am super fortunate. My parents are still alive. Um, but I've watched them age and I would prefer to age differently. You know, they're, they're doing okay, but they're not the way I want to be at 78. Um, and so I think that that really just sparked looking into how can I optimize myself now so that every 10 years, my risk factors stay zero. And so that to me is like, I need, I would like to live 10 years younger than what my chronological age is. And what can I do to do that? Because I don't like the models that we have to operate in in healthcare right now. I, I just um, finished listening to Atiyah's book. He said a lot of this, the medical approach is that it's like you have a smoker who develops lung cancer and you say, maybe you should stop smoking now. And <laughs> when actually <laughs> that discussion should have happened, but a long time ago, right? It's an interesting way to think about things. And I think it's, I, I get some flack from people. They're like, oh, you're really extreme. Why do you do these? And I'm not, I'm, I don't think I'm really extreme. I think I'm just sort of sensible, but <laughs> you know, I guess we all feel that way. Uh, but you know what, you know what I mean? Like, how do we think yeah. about this longer time horizon? You know, I think it, I agree with you. Like, unfortunately, the way the medical system is set up, Prevention is not paid for. 
is basically the bottom line. You know, it always usually comes down to money, unfortunately. And so practicing preventative care is not super well supported because insurance companies don't really like it because it, you know, at the end of the day, it keeps people out of the hospital and hospitals make money when people are in the hospital. Insurance companies make money when people are in the hospital. Drug companies make money, you know, all of those things. And so keeping people out of the hospital, keeping people healthy and keeping people off medication is not financially lucrative for a lot of industries, um, which is unfortunate. But I think that that is part of the bottom line. Um, And so it's really hard in today's healthcare system for, especially for these general practitioners to come in because also prevention takes time and they don't have time. You know, when they have 15 minutes to come in and talk to you, it's really hard to do a great preventative visit because it does take time. You have to go into what you're eating and how you're moving and all of these things. I'm hoping that's slowly starting to change. And I also think that this is not something that's taught in medical school and residency. So, you know, the people that practice this type of medicine have really had to go out on their own and learn. Um, And, you know, there are some now educational groups and societies that are set up to help foster this education, but it's not considered kind of mainstream medical school learning this preventative care. And so I think that's part of the reason that we lag so far behind is that you really have to understand that this even just field of medicine exists. Mm. And, you know, people talk about functional medicine and it still has this kind of hippie vibe to it a little bit. And I, I think eventually we will get there, but um, it just, ha- it's going to take a huge culture shift. And so, you know, the risk factors for, you know, heart disease and all of those things are, are these 10 year models. And so it's, it is really challenging to say to your practitioner, gosh, I know I have a risk score of zero in the next 10 years. But I'm actually not okay with that because I have two or three or four factors for me personally that are not even calculated for in this model. Therefore, how do I know what they're doing to this model? Maybe my risk score is much higher if these factors were included. And I think that's the other thing is our our diagnostic ability is starting to um is outpacing these some of these models. Mm-hmm. And so, like some of you know, we now are looking at lipids. probably in a little bit better way, but those numbers are not the numbers that are in, those values are not the values that are in some of these models. And so I think there is a disconnect. And so it takes a really educated patient to go in as you are, to go into your doctor and say, yeah, maybe my calcium score is only two, but I have these other findings and therefore I would like to be treated even though I don't qualify for treatment. Yeah, uh, that's, you know, I think one of the other, there, there are a couple of other things here, and we've had a couple of famous economic um, economics folks on this show, and essentially the current healthcare model when combined with aging is financially unsustainable on a global level. It will, it, there will be a, the global economy will be bankrupted um, if we keep doing what we're doing. So I think there's, there is a certain imperative to change some of this on a, on a, you know, like on a, on a national level to say like, Mm -hmm. Hey, Mm -hmm. like in the same way, smoking is just not cool anymore. 
um, my, you know, my current uh, view of evil is Mountain Dew. I think this should be like a regulated substance. Like, okay, if you want to drink this stuff, it's going to cost you, you know, this amount of money and there's going to be all these warning mm-hmm. labels on it. And I think the other thing, what what this causes is an enormous amount of patient, and I don't even want to use the word patient, I want to call it consumer, because we're healthcare consumers. It's There's healthcare consumer confusion because you get a lot of contradictory, confusing information about healthcare, right? And the and they yeah. keep lowering the bar because they say for the average person, the last I heard, a hundred million Americans are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. So, like that lowers the average bar. <laughs> okay. So if you're if you're a consumer, then you've got a doc that's saying, like, well, I don't know. And but you're reading all this other stuff and you're thinking, hmm, maybe I should do something. And it sort of forces people out of the science-based medical folks into healers and other stuff, which may or may not have efficacy. We don't know, but it's sort of a desperation. Yeah. No, I think it is. I think it is a big problem. And I think that it takes a very confident and um, determined physician to kind of break down those barriers because it is going a little bit against the grain. And I think you know, in medicine, our first goal is to do no harm. And so when we start doing things that there's not great evidence for, but yet really probably good theory and thought process behind, it becomes this gray area. And it does take some buy-in on both the consumer and the provider's sides to say, we're going to try this. And um it's not the same as you come in and, oh, your strep throat test is positive. So I'm going to give you these antibiotics and this is well-proven in the standard of care. There really are no standards of care for this. And so you're right that it's sometimes physicians just put their hands up and say, hey, I'm really not comfortable doing this. And it forces people to, to seek care elsewhere, which again, you know, has its advantages and disadvantages. Um, I agree with you. The healthcare system is going to have to change because of how much we spend, um, especially end of life care. You know, the dollars that we spend at end of life are is ridiculous, um, and for the quality that we, the quality of life we provide those patients. So, and you know, I would even see this in my pediatric anesthesia practice. The prevalence of obesity in children is astronomical, and you know, you look at you look at what foods are attainable and you look at what foods, you know, if you are in a lower socioeconomic setting and you are hungry and you walk in, the food you can afford is not the food that's going to keep you healthy. And that's, you know, it's a tragedy. You know, those are not families that are strolling through the farmer's market. Um, Those are families that are struggling to pay their bills and are eating what they can. And it's, um, it is really tragic. And those foods are also like, they're highly addictive. You know, you can't, take your Mountain Dew and then say, here, have some water, <laughs> you know, um, when you've had Mountain Dew your whole life. So it's, it's, cha- it's a challenge and on so many levels, you know, I look at the vending machines in my kids' schools. Why would you have access to food like this at school? You know, especially for families where that is, you know, maybe their children are eating two of their three meals a day at school. I mean, that's such a great place to make these 
early on interventions. And because, you know, it, as we all know, it's hard to change behavior as you get older and older. But if we can instill some of these behaviors in our younger, in younger generations and younger people that, you know, they pick up the apple instead of the bag of chips because that's all they've had access to um, while at school and when kind of their food choices have, you know, there's more control over what their food choices can be. Maybe we, we prevent some of this in a very grassroots, non-technologically advanced way. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's, uh, that's probably what's going to happen. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping something changes with that because um, yeah. there, there, there's just so yeah. many behaviors, like as you said, that are sort of brought to children as being normal. Um, and mm-hmm. that's not good. But anyway, let's, yeah. um, I want to ask you about performance. So yeah. uh, per- performance is the is is your world in 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 so many it ways. Is. So what do you if I say the word performance, what does that mean to you? I love this question because if you would have asked me two years, I would answer very differently than how I would answer today. Um so I think when most people hear performance, they think of elite athletes. Um, most of the time, at least that's what I used to think of, you know, when I was getting my master's in exercise physiology, our elite performers, you know, they were on treadmills hooked up to VO2 max machines. You know, that was what performance meant. We were doing, we were taking elite subjects and analyzing them, assessing them, um, and then creating plans to improve their physical performance or athletic performance. Um, since being at Liminal, that definition has broadened significantly. And I would say, um, we look at performance in a very holistic sense, um, with physical performance being a small component of overall human performance. Um, so we've created a method of, we create what's called, uh, an elite performance model for whatever individual or group we're working with, where, we put the most component of what performance means to that individual in the middle. So for most people, when we do this with most groups, that's a human in the center because the human wants to be better. And then we, around the center, create all of these different cogs that help that human perform better. So they can be nutrition, physical performance, sleep, regeneration, technology, spirituality, community. So whatever nature, all of these things that really contribute to how humans perform. And that was something that I took for granted for a long time. And we talk about there is task-specific performance, which most elite performers are very good at. So let's take your world, let's take skiing. (laughs) Most elite skiers, they're very good at skiing. They're very good at everything technically related to skiing. They are, you know, and their whole programming, whether it's nutrition mindset is all focused on their task. But what happens when skiing ends? What are they left with? Do they know how to perform as a human? And so that's really kind of what my definition of performance has become is a lot of the groups we work with, they need this general human preparedness this general human performance 
because they are they have teams around them that are very good at the elite tactical performance, but they're not very good at this foundation. And so when that elite world ends, whether you are a highly trained Navy SEAL or a Cirque du Soleil performer, eventually that road ends and you have to come back to these foundational principles. And that to me is truly what performance is, is do you have these really strong foundations and building blocks to stand on when you're very elite, usually very narrow scope of expertise when that period of your life comes to an end. Talk to me about emotional performance. I think that is an incredibly underrated skill and one that most of us don't like to get into because it's messy. Um, And I, you know, most people think it's soft and that it doesn't matter. And I think um, it's been really interesting when we work with groups and my partner, Ben Potvin, is the master at this. And he takes these very elite groups of performers and takes them on this emotional ride where we laugh and we cry and we, we kind of pull out these extremes and they will come back and say that that is the hardest thing they've had to do is to really, because we, we like to stay so narrow and so regulated and we don't like to feel these extremes of emotion, especially in front of other people. Um, And so when we help them kind of stretch what they can do emotionally, they can actually absorb a lot more and handle that emotion a lot better because we've shown them one extreme and shown them the other and let them kind of feel what it feels like in a very safe space to get a little out of control on one end or the other and how to bring themselves back into control in a very safe space. And I think that's really important because I, you know, when you are an elite performer, most of the time it is not a physical or technical mistake that causes you to not perform optimally. It's something going on in your mind. You know, that's the difference really. And so if you have learned how to handle that wide range of emotion and can bring yourself back because you, you practice that in a safe spot, it's really helpful to being able to optimize kind of your mental game and um, how you handle certain situations. I mean, I think of the self-actualization. Yeah. There are these people who are, you know, the Navy SEALs or Olympians or people like that. And they're extraordinary at this small sliver of mm-hmm. human behavior. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's, you know, my, my, the, the driving force in my life is to be the best version of David I can possibly be. And anything less than that, I feel like I'm shortchanging all the teachers I've had, the people around me, my family. Mm-hmm. So I like owe it to them to become like the best David. So, mm-hmm. so that, um, yeah, there's a, there's an element of physicality to that, but there's like, a that's just sort of not the big picture, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And I would say we spend very, very little, if any time on the physical, you know, we'll talk about it and we'll do some things that are physically engaging, but that's not the focus. I, because I do think that most people are are actually like pretty decent at that, or there's a lot of good information out there, you know? Um, and I think it is doing these other 
less tangible skill sets and less tangible areas um, that are really important to bring to light for people that exactly make us the best versions of ourselves. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, you know, on this idea of like the best version and performance, there, there are some people, um, you know, like Brian Johnson, who I spoke to recently, he looks mm-hmm. at this as very much of an engineering problem. It's here mm-hmm. we have this sort of mechanism, this this machine, and how can we optimize the machine? And I, and okay, that works for some people, but I, I think there's just a, a high, like as a human, um, highest performance of humanity is much more complicated that they're, they're not metrics on this. No. And I, I mean, I think you can, you know, we've talked about this a little bit when we look at these communities of people that tend to have long lives and long health spans, they're not always doing what's recommended. You know, these are communities that smoke. These are communities that drink probably more than they should. Um, all of these things, but there is some underlying reason that these communities on average live longer. And I, I I mean, I can't back this up with any science, but my personal belief is that that sense of belonging, that sense of tribe, that sense of community is, has a huge impact on people's stress levels. And I think that sense of tribe takes away a little bit of that competition of where your kids are going to college, what car you're driving, how big your house is, like so many of those stressors that really are not important to me being the best version of myself. Like where my kids go to college should have no meaning to my best version of myself, right? That's not a pillar that I should measure myself against, but we do. And that adds so much stress into our lives and I, I think when you look at these other communities, that is that aspect of their lives is missing or significantly smaller. And, you know, they have this deep, deep sense of connection to each other um, and to their values and to belonging to something bigger than themselves. And I know that sounds strange, and this is not something I would have ever said a couple of years ago, but I really do think that that is um, a key to, to people like being the best versions of themselves and, and being happy. And I think there is, you know, I think this happiness thing is super, super important. Um, I had a, uh, an, an ordained member of the Episcopal church on last week. And we, we I, I was dying to hear this. We had a conversation about the intersection of longevity and religion. And and part of part of what we talked about was this idea of joy and how he's like, oh, the church loves joy. It's a very high emotion. Like the more joy, the better. And I and I think that, you know, within all of this, if we intersect performance and longevity, um, joy becomes a performance metric. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I and 100%. I think and 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 this idea of community. Um, also becomes, you know, sort of a, a perhaps a more measurable performance metric, and, mm-hmm. and it's, um, I, I mean, I, I because of the people I talk to, I often get this question of like, well, 
you know, what should I do to live longer? Should I take this supplement? Should I, you know, exercise, whatever? And I just said, yeah. cheapest thing you can do is just smile more. <laughs> right? Just look at the look at the sky and smile. <laughs> right? You know, yeah. it, it, it's really interesting. And I think that um, we definitely need to be reminded of that. And when my family relocated to the mountains, like that was one reason was to like lift your head up and look around. And it, it's, I we remind ourselves that all the time, like we'll be out running and I'll look up and I'm like, that is beautiful. I'm going to just stop. Maybe I'm going to take a picture or maybe I'm just going to stop and look for a second and and have a moment of being grateful and, you know, and have a thought of gratitude and pick my eyes up for a minute and then just keep going. And I think that that is so important and we get so busy and, you know, um, we've talked about this, you know, you can spend your entire day from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed, trying to live a longer life. You know, I'm going to eat here. I'm not going to eat here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to take this. I need morning sunlight. I need to be dark in the night. And you can spend your whole architect, your day's architecture committed to that. And for some people that is great. And I admire those people. I, I am not one of those people. Um, but there also can just be moments of joy. And I think slowing down and looking up and um, we get in such a hurry all the time. And I am so guilty of this, but just exactly that smiling, saying hello to someone on a trail, saying, you know, just appreciating what's around us. Um, and I think it, it it has significant health benefits. I I can't prove this, but I'm sure it lowers your cortisol level and just helps, you know, lowers your heart rate a little bit and has all of those things that are really, really beneficial. I was um, Memorial Day. I was actually skiing at Snowbird, where they still have a hundred inches of snow, which is hard to believe. It's crazy, and it was quite warm. And I um, was running a chair up, chairless up with a couple of ladies. And we were sort of just, you know, just talking about stuff. And they're like, "Oh, um, I, you know, we're talking about skiing." I said, "Oh yeah, I do this like race thing." And the one woman, um, I'm guessing both of these women. I want to say they were. It's hard to tell with skiing because everybody's all you got a lot of gear on. You can't really tell. Yeah. I, I'd guess like 60s and the one woman got really agitated and she was like, no, no, no. It's about joy. It's about maximum joy. Everything I do is about joy. And I was like, and she just like went off on this joy trip about <laughs> like, like, I may tell you I'm going to go over here, but if I think this run is more joyful, I'm going to do that because all I do, she orients her entire being towards wow. this idea of daily maximum joy. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> you go, girl. <laughs> yeah, what a way to live. I want some of that. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it is interesting. Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, so there's, you know, this idea of th- th- where performance, I think, gets... Man, to the idea of elite athletic performance and longevity can go together, but that Venn diagram, not so much, Mm-mm. you know, and, and I think looking at performance in a different way rather than, okay, if you're a Navy SEAL, like obviously you got to like do this thing or you're, you know, you're mm-hmm. Olympic downhill. Okay, great. But I think for most people, that thinking about human performance, how it intersects longevity, because like for me, I'm, I'm sort of a late bloomer, right? Like 
I was always like, small in high school and it's, it's sort of like taken me a while to get my momentum. So I need a longer mm-hmm. runway, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. need more time. And for me to really, perf- for me, perform means like, like in a, a, a much longer window. It's not two or three mm-hmm. years. It's like a hundred years. So that, that's what I need. And to think about like, what are the things in terms of that performance metric to, to do? And I yeah. guess that sort of comes back to your 40 year plan. Right. Well, and I, I mean, I think I can take a example from my world, you know, you can be a top performing cardiac surgeon and be the most unhealthy person in your life because your performance is so narrow in what you do. And, and the rest of your life has fallen apart. You don't eat well, you don't sleep well, you, your relationships have suffered. You never go outside, you don't exercise, et cetera. So I think that, um, I think it is opening your mind to embrace a non-traditional definition of performance, which you obviously have, you know, it is, um, I want to be happy and happiness is important. So finding things that make me happy saying, is it worth working that last hour or sitting down and having dinner with my family? You know, and I think we get so caught up in, we need to get this done. We need to do this. We need to do this, that we forget to do that. And it's easy. Um, Life is stressful. Things are busy, but I do think where longevity and performance intersect and where they become vital and crucial to each other is building those foundations. Like we talked about that you have to have all of these components. You can't, you can't just have the physical component or the emotional component or the nutrition component. They all work together. And, um, if you overdo one, the tank's going to be drained in others. And so you have to figure out You know, we kind of talk about, we create this kind of mental model of kind of a series of cogs and the big cog in the center is the human and all these little cogs are turning on the sides of all these different gears. And if they're all turning green, pretty good. Um, I don't think mine have all ever been green, but I, you know, that's kind of the goal is how is my life balanced enough that all of these various components are in the green. And, um, and so I think that's how I look at performance and longevity. The more of those outside cogs that contribute to myself, the more that those are turning in the green, the longer I'm going to be around and the healthier I'm going to be to match that longevity. If I only have one green and the rest are red, I'm really, really good at whatever that green is, but the rest of my life is falling apart and I may not know it because I'm so focused on that one area. And so I do think it is taking the time to step back and say, okay, this is where I am now. And there are are acute stressors that we all have to deal with um, at different phases of our lives, but saying, how am I going to have as many of these cogs that I have put around myself green this year, five years, 10 years, 40 years. And what, how do I need to plan for that? You know, and you know, it's interesting that we both live in Park City. And I think this is a very unique place. When I moved here, people are like, be really careful. There's fit and there's Park City fit. <laughs> yeah, and, it's so true. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and I, you know, I, I consider myself relatively fit, but I would probably never classify myself as Park City fit. Um, 
And so I think, you know, you have to be careful. Like I have learned that some of the stuff I used to be able to do and probably still could do if I wanted to is not healthy for me anymore. Like I need to stretch a little bit more. I need to balance a little bit more. Like I'm, I can't run every day anymore. And that's actually okay. And like learning to make those mental adjustments to say, I walked my dogs for an hour today and I came home and stretched for 45 minutes. That's a really good day for me. And that is actually what my body needs. So 40 years from now, I can still get up and down off the floor. Um, And so I think that it is kind of creating that model for yourself and then really you know, kind of constantly reevaluating how you keep as many of those components green as you can going forward. And what, and maybe you have to dial one back at a certain amount of time to let it be fully expressed later. You know, that we, like I said, I, I can't run a marathon a month and expect to walk later. My body's not built like that. Some people are, and I'm envious of them, but that's not me. And I need to accept that fact. And if I want to be skiing at 80, or picking my grandkids up off the floor. I need to change what I'm doing now. Um, So anyway, that's kind of the way I look at how performance and longevity intertwine. Um, And I think you can look at almost every component that you have there and say, this is working now. How do I need it to work at these, you know, whatever time points in the future, you, however far you want to look. Um, and do, do I need to dial back or dial up certain things now? So 40 years from now, I'm still in this good spot. I think this is, I think what you're saying is so important that, that having a vision for oneself when one is at whatever age one wants to be, I, I, um, I kid my wife and I say, um, I have a very clear vision of how I want to die. And my vision of dying is I want to be hiking in the Alps and at 95, have a massive cardiac event. And um, she hates this idea because she's like, what am I going to do with your body? I've got to get it down off the mountain. And oh my God, I'm going to be stuck with this dead person up there. (laughs) But I think if one thinks about, you know, if you want to live to 100 and you're 40, 50, 60, 70, what do you need to do to cause that to happen? Because it's not going to happen accidentally. Like, you know, it might happen to those tribes in Costa Rica or something, but that's them. They don't live like us. Mm -hmm, Like. mm -hmm. For us right. to do this, it, 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 we need a certain amount of conscious effort. If, what are we doing mm-hmm. with our social group? How are we are we emotionally advancing or are we shrinking? You know how we mm-hmm. physicality, our our mental capacity, our our finances, all these things need mm-hmm. to be thought in this much longer time horizon. And I and I think that that it sort of comes back to this like you know we just we play oh like four years or five years, but. That's where, where's that going to get you? Um, You know, as you said, like your, your 10 year risk horizon, I don't care about, I I mean, I do care about my 10 year risk horizon, but I really care about my 40 year risk horizon. Right. Right. And so I do, I think it, you know, I, I agree with everything you're saying. It's, um, and I think it's hard to fathom because I think, you know, there are, there have been pockets of people, obviously for generations that have wanted to live this way. But I think this is, you know, this is a relatively new concept that we are going to have, you know, I look, I look at what happens to some of my own family members. They got to a certain age and literally one day decided to be old. One day they were fine walking around and the next day hunched over, forgetful, cognitively impaired, 
And I was like, what happened? Oh, I'm just old now. And I, well, there's actually not nothing physically wrong right, with you. Right. Like millions of dollars of medical workup has shown nothing. Um, you, this was a decision. Um, exactly. And so, right. And a mindset. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's going to be interesting as, as more and more people defy that mindset right. and say, I'm, I'm not going to age the way my parents aged. And I do think developing communities of like-minded people, you know, I, I have watched what has happened um, to my family members and my friends, family members, as our parents are aging. Um, most of our parents are in their late seventies, early eighties. And those that have stayed in these engaged social groups with habits and routines together, whether it's playing bridge or playing pickleball or hiking or traveling, whatever their activities are, have stayed mentally sharp and they appear younger. And the groups that have isolated themselves and said, we're old, have aged exponentially. Um, And it's fascinating to watch with really similar underlying health profiles. You know, it's not that one is exceedingly healthy and the others are suffering from all of these chronic diseases. It is just this mindset that has created this wide gap in how they're spending the latter part of their lives. It's it's a belief system. And it's something, mm-hmm. um, this is the reason I created Aegist, was to expand mm-hmm. people's imagination of what is possible versus this sort of thing that we're, we're faced with constantly in the media. And, and it's just like, Oh, well, I guess I'm old and I'm forgetful or I'm old and I can't do this. And, and, and the bar keeps getting lowered down and okay. I mean, you can, you can do that if you want, but, mm-hmm. um, that's a, just acknowledge that's a choice. Um, like if you right. want to act old and you want to self-fossilize, okay, I don't have a problem with that, yeah. but you don't, you don't have to, like there's other alternatives here. Isn't right. As you said, I can't. Right. I just can't physically run the way I used to, my, my body mechanics are not what they were when I was mm-hmm. 20 and understanding we have continued capacity far beyond what may be being messaged to us. Right. And I think, you know, I think some of that comes back to what we talked to earlier with establishing these behaviors at as early in life as possible, because it is much harder to change behavior later on. So if you've never exercised and at 60, decide you're going to start exercising, really challenging, really challenging. And I applaud all those people that do it. And a lot of people do, but if you've exercised from the time you were a teenager, it, it, it just becomes part of your day. It does. You don't even have to consciously really think about it. Um, and so I look at you know, when I think of longevity and these groups, I, I just look at these populations that have embedded these habits very early in life. And it just becomes so much easier to continue that I don't have to consciously plan exercise for me in my day. I just, I know exactly when it's going to happen. It happens every day and um, it's changing. Maybe the type of exercise changes, but the fact that I am going to move in a day is just a non-negotiable. Um, and I think that um, the earlier we can start doing some of these interventions, so they become just 
part of our lifestyle um, really is going to aid in that because I do think that it's real hard to start some of this later in life. Um, And unfortunately, sometimes we can't undo some of the damage we've done if we haven't started these practices earlier in life. I think a lot of times, um, I think most people have this delusion that nobody sees them, that they're invisible. That's Mm -hmm. not true. We're constantly modeling behavior out there. And it's like, you're a mom, so you model behavior Mm -hmm. for your kids. I'm out here Mm -hmm. a little more public and I model behavior and people see this. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that this is one of the, re- this is one of my other thoughts about um, performance and peak performance is to become the best version of the human you can, because guess what? You're not invisible. People see you mm-hmm. and they say, mm-hmm. Oh, that, Oh, I can do that. I don't have to do the mountain dew. <laughs> I do this other thing. That's, right. that's on the menu now. Right. Right. I, I agree a hundred percent. And I think, um, I like that analogy that you just took, like do, you know, we model behavior for those younger than us. Um, whether you're a parent or not, you, you know, people still look up to you and, um, and why do we lose that? Like, why do we lose that, um, goal of, yes, I have, I try to have very few meetings where I'm sitting down anymore. You know, I try to let's meet for a walk. If we're in the same town, let's do these things. Um, because it is interesting when you see people out moving around um, or you're going to eat or you're going to, you know, whatever choices you're making. Um, I think that I agree a hundred percent that modeling behavior is so important. And it's interesting um, when we were playing around with some of these longevity techniques and uh, my husband and I were doing some time restricted feeding and I realized I wasn't eating dinner with my kids and I have two teenage daughters and they actually stopped eating dinner. And I said, whoa, okay, let's look at what we're doing in this risk benefit profile. I was like, I have a long family history of disordered eating. I am now, my kids are at school all day um, and I'm at work and they don't see what I'm eating while they're at school and at work. They don't see I am actually putting like healthy food into my body during the day. But at dinner, I'm sitting there not eating and they are. And they're like, well, mom's not eating. I shouldn't need to eat. And I said, okay. So I looked at my husband. I'm like, I can't do this. Like this, you know, the benefit that might happen for me is such a detriment to what I, the behavior I am modeling for my teenage daughters um, that I was like, we're done with this. Um, we will eat dinner as a family and we will all have a meal in front of us and enjoy that process. And, um, so it is interesting. And I, it took a couple of weeks for me to realize what was going on. And I was like, oh, we have to stop this right now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Good move. (laughs) Um, so. Jen, this has just been lovely. Um, I, I hope we get to do this again. Oh. Tell me if, if people want to investigate this, the guardians of the galaxy that you belong to, um, how do they look yeah. at this? So, uh, liminal collective has a website. Um, it's just liminalcollective.co, Um, and you can find us there. Um, my new adventure prosper does not have a website yet, but, um, if anybody wants to get a hold of me, my email's on the liminal website, or it's just Jen at J E N at we prosper.co, um, will get you to me as well. So, um, David, thank you. It's so fun to talk to you. Um, and I'm so glad we 
got connected on the panel because it's just fun to listen to what you're talking about. And you have such amazing guests on this podcast. I'm really honored and humbled to be included. Um, So thanks again. Jen, thank you so much. Thank you. That was great. Dr. Jen Wagner, um, she's, she's an extraordinary human being. And it's, she's so normal uh, for somebody who achieves at her level. It's really so pleasant. And I think that this idea of speaking with our medical providers and saying like, okay, this is this looks good for five years, but what about 40 or 50 years? And, and really pressing them to create a plan for us that, that takes us out for, you know, what we think is, you know, what our lifespan could be. Is it 40, 50, 60 years? You know, what do we need to do to prepare for something like that? We're going to get with Just Try This in just a moment. Today's show is also brought to you by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is the dashboard to your inner health. You know, we talk about this a lot, about metrics, what matters, biomarkers. The thing is, you can't take actions on things that you don't know about, and what you don't know about can hurt you. I use Inside Tracker. I take their ultimate test four times a year. I look at their biomarkers. I see what's moving from quarter to quarter, so I can see if I've made changes in my program and my diet. Is there something that I need to adjust? And their food first, supplement second recommendations are great. I always share results with my doctor. And if there's something we need to go over, we do that. Get a dashboard to your inner health. Go to insidetracker.com slash ageist, save 20% on all their products. Today on Just Try This, we're remembering Tina Turner. And there's a quote of hers that's been out there. It says, my legacy is that I stayed on course from the beginning to the end because I believed in something inside of me. On Just Try This this week, I'd like to ask us all to think about what is it that we believe inside of us that powers us forward and keep that in mind as we go forward this week. Just try this. Thank you all for joining us on the show this week. We respect your time and your attention, and we think it's wonderful that you have decided to spend them with us. This is the moment in the show where you get to leave us up to a five-star review wherever you're listening to this program. And if you so choose... You can also share this program with perhaps someone out there who you think could use it. That would be wonderful. Next week, we've got another great show. We have some really interesting technology that we're looking at, and um, we'll be talking about that next week. Until then, everyone, have a wonderful week. Take care now.